I invite your attention again to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. For the sake of you who are visiting today, we are studying through Genesis, and a uh, little at a time, a few verses a week. Hopefully we'll get through it someday. Only 44 chapters to go. <clears throat> Genesis 6, today we'll look at verses 9, 6, 9 through 7, 10. 6, 9 to 7, 10, a little bit uh, bigger section today. In the last edition of the Chapel Forum, the little newspaper that uh, we put out here at the chapel with different articles in it, uh, you probably received that uh, this past week, I think. Um, I pointed out there in the pastor's pitch that to talk about the covenant is a lot like talking about motherhood. Both can be defined in just a few words. But the most eloquent description in the world still doesn't exhaust the subject. Motherhood is grander than all our definitions. And so is God's covenant of grace. Though we find it only a few words, it's a promise agreement that God makes. Well, given that recent analogy, uh, it's ironic that this Mother's Day, we should come to a text in which, for the very first time in the whole Bible, the word covenant is used. It's going to be used 270-some more times in the Bible, but this is the first time we come to it this morning. Let me read this text, and you'll see it here in the middle of the text beginning with verse 9 of Genesis 6. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all, the, to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build the ark. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door on the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of, every living of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you and will be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, 
and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. See that reference to the covenant there? Chapter 6, verse 18. I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you, your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now later in chapters 8 and 9, God is going to get into quite some extravagant discussion about the particular covenant arrangement he's making with Noah. We don't see all of that here, here we see only that God's dealings with Noah from the beginning is an example of God's covenant of grace that runs throughout the scripture. Here we see in God's dealing with Noah the most basic covenantal uh, forms, the most basic covenant motif, that is, grace and a response. Or as we say so often, promise and obligation. What God says and does and what he requires of us in response. Well, our text has two truths that I want us to see, and they're basically along those two lines. The first is this. God promises deliverance. God promises deliverance. Did you ever notice how few people listen to safety instructions? I don't know if you fly very often. I don't fly very often, but I'm always amazed. You get on an airplane and you're sitting there and the flight attendant uh, begins to uh, give all the safety briefing and everyone's talking and carrying on and reading their magazine and getting settled and looking for a pillow and all those things. While the flight attendants are dutifully briefing people on how to escape with their lives. <laughs> nobody pays much attention. That's because nobody expects to be in an accident. Ah, but when there are a few accidents, you see, people suddenly start paying more attention to those things. See, we don't care about being rescued unless we realize we're in danger. Well, the first thing that God promises, then, as he promises deliverance to his people, the first thing he promises is that they are in danger. Judgment is certain. We saw this last week. God will judge the wicked, we said. Well, here it is again. It doesn't go away. Verse 11 and 12, it talks about what God saw on the earth. Let me read it again. The earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. In a word, the earth was corrupt. Words used three times there in two little verses. Corrupt, 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 God saw. Furthermore, the corruption was practiced with violence. It wasn't just that everything wasn't uh, 
wasn't uh, up to snuff, wasn't uh, nice and clean and uh, functioning with integrity. No, it was violence, and it was violence at the highest levels. Men of renown, we saw last week, the leadership. And that, of course, filtered down into the grassroots until everyone is affected, and the whole culture becomes a place where corruption and violence become a way of life. Sounds way too familiar, doesn't it? Corruption and violence is a way of life. And God says, I'm going to destroy it all. Verse 13, so God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. There's an interesting little play on words here in Hebrew. The word for corrupt is the same root word as the word for destroy. The common meaning is ruining or devastating. The wicked had ruined or devastated the earth, and God says, I'm going to ruin and devastate the wicked. God promises to destroy. He says it again in verse 17, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. God promises judgment is certain. He says it again in chapter 7, verse 4, Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Doesn't get much ex more explicit than that. God promises to destroy humanity from the earth because of the corruption and violence which has taken over his world. And we might say, well, that was back then. We don't know anything about that. Folks, this is where we stand. We stand under a similar prediction. In fact, the flood was only a token judgment. The real judgment is still coming. God promises that one day he will purge the earth completely. Listen to some words of warning. One from the Old Testament, from the prophet Zephaniah. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter. The shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring distress on the peoples, and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. That's God's prediction since the flood of something still to come. He says it again in the New Testament in 2 Peter, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be 
laid bare. You see, folks, whether we want to think about it or not, God has promised that another great day of judgment is coming. Just like he promised them, he's promised us. It's already marked on his calendar. It has a set date, month, day, year. We don't know what that is. But the woeful, terrifying day of the Lord is fixed. The last day. And our only hope, like their only hope, is that God might somehow make a way of escape. And that's exactly what happened in Noah's case. God promised deliverance in the middle of all of that judgment. He provided a place of safety. God the designer had a design. He called it the ark. It was God's idea. It was to be built according to God's plan. For only God knew the magnitude of what it was he was about to send upon the earth. And so God told Noah. He took him into his confidence and he told him what to do. Exactly how to build this ark. We read it in verses 14 and six to 16. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it, coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door on the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. God the designer designed a way of escape. God's also the creator, and God the creator uh, planned a way to preserve his creation. Take two of every kind, a male and its mate, from all of the animals of the earth, that the creation might be uh, uh, preserved. God's also the Redeemer, and God the Redeemer had it worked out how to continue to have a relationship with man. He said, take seven of every clean animal, so that you have animals for sacrifice, so that there can be worship so that you can be reconciled to your God on the other side of this judgment. God, the provider and preserver, made, made sure that there were adequate supplies. Verse 21, take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away. You see, God promised and provided deliverance. He didn't just introduce the idea that someone might be delivered. He promised to deliver them, and he told them exactly what to do and how to do it, and he had thought of everything. Oh, and listen to this wonderful truth. And God promised to include Noah's family. We see it in that key verse, 618, I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. There it is again in chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I found you righteous in this generation. And there's no question that this part, this is part of God's grace to Noah. For there in 7 1, when God tells Noah to take his whole family in the ark, God says, Because I have found you, singular, you, Noah, righteous. Take your whole family, and I will deliver them with you. You see, this is how God's covenant always is. He promises nothing less than deliverance from judgment. 
His deliverance is an act of sovereign grace. He takes the initiative. He does the choosing. He devises the plan of salvation. He provides for every part of it. He sets the terms of the agreement. And he does the so for those who do not deserve it. It's all of grace. And in his covenant promises, he includes our children. Oh, dear people, this is a whole uh, wonderful way of understanding who God is and how God deals with us and his covenant. In light of the coming judgment, he provides salvation. You know, there's quite a different view of God floating around us all the time. People think of God in some kind of uh, um, impersonal way. He's some supernatural uh, energy field. And uh, we're always trying to connect our spirits to this life spirit or something. And so people pursue all kinds of ex experiments and follow all kinds of gurus trying to somehow get in touch with this greater spiritual, supernatural reality. But that's not the God of the Bible. And that's not what's really true. That's not how God is. God is very personal. He's the God of history. He's revealed himself. He's, he's an infinite person. And he is affronted by the sins of mankind. And he promises that he will destroy the earth and its sinfulness. But he also, in his grace, promises that he will deliver some. Just like he did in the days of Noah. And he has done everything necessary to deliver us. He came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. After living in perfect righteousness, he willingly went to the cross to make an atonement for our sins. He died and was buried, but God raised him from the dead as proof that our sins are atoned for. And then this Jesus ascended to the right hand of God where he rules in power until he comes to judge on the last day. And on that day, only those will be saved who have recognized the judgment is coming and have rested themselves in relationship to this deliverer, whose name is Jesus. You see, in the day coming judgment, there will be only one ark of refuge, Jesus Christ. Once it was a wooden boat built according to God's design. Today it is a person, God himself, come in the flesh, who provides salvation for all those who run to him and trust in him. This is God's gracious promise. In his grace, he promises to deliver. Like he promised to deliver Noah, and he did. He promises now to deliver from the judgment to come all those who are in Christ Jesus and not one person more. He promises. Well, that raises a great question. How then should we respond to that announcement of deliverance, that promise to deliver? Well, that's our second thing we will talk about from this passage. God requires faithfulness. That's the response. God requires faithfulness. Let's talk about that for a few moments. The question concerning what God expects in response to his grace is a most profound question. 
It's nothing less than the question, what must I do to be saved? That's the question. Now, on the one hand, that's an easy answer. We have it in just exactly those words. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Sounds like Noah, doesn't it? But as easy as that answer is, it's been a matter of terrible confusion among Christians. Some have turned this covenant response into a virtual labor contract with God. Do such and such and such and such. If you do this and if you do that and if you keep this rule and keep that rule, well then you will be remunerated, you'll be paid off with God's blessing and God's deliverance someday. Grace thus gets parceled out like it's some commodity that you get in response for doing certain good deeds. Grace isn't wages. It's a gift. God warns us our wages, if we want wages, the wages of our sin is death, not eternal life. But while some have turned God's grace into a labor contract, others reacting to that have, have, have turned the covenant to response into virtually a license to sin. Well, it doesn't matter what you do, they would say. You're under grace now, not law. Do whatever you please. Doesn't matter. God's gracious. So God gets treated as if he's a fool, as if he gives away his riches only to make the recipients more irresponsible and more greedy and more thieving. Grace becomes a license to sin. Surely that's not God's plan. So, so, so what is the desired purpose outlined in the covenant of grace? What does it mean to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household? What does that mean? Well, we would do well to consider Noah's example, for here we have a model of what that means in one case, and it would apply to us. Here we see that God requires faithfulness. Let me just note several things. First of all, Noah's response is properly called faith. We certainly are saved by faith. We don't want to move an inch away from that. That word isn't actually used in our text, but in Hebrews 11, that great chapter of the heroes of faith, there we find Noah. And there we read of Noah these words. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. It was by faith that Noah was made righteous in God's eyes. He believed God. When God told Noah that he had looked on him with favor, Noah believed him. When God told Noah he was about to destroy the world, Noah believed him. When God told Noah he would deliver him from judgment, Noah believed him. Noah was a great man of faith. In fact, we read in verse 9 that Noah walked with God. He lived in intimate relationship, a trusting relationship, believing what God said and enjoying his fellowship. Relationship, you remember we saw dependence and, and continuing one step at a time. He walked with God in faith. But our text also makes clear here that Noah was a righteous man. Now, we know that the only way a person is righteous in God's sight is by faith. 
when we believe God's promises and trust in Christ, put our faith in Christ instead of ourselves, in the courtroom of heaven, God declares us now righteous. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Well, that's what that verse said about Noah. By his faith, he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He was declared righteous in God's eyes by faith. He was justified by faith, to put it in our terms. Just like you and I must be. But it's clear when you're reading our text that it wasn't just some official status of righteousness that was characteristic of Noah. The kind of righteousness that we see in Noah is also a, 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 a righteousness of a holy life, living blameless before God and man. So we read that in verse 9. He was blameless among the people of his time. In fact, in chapter 7, verse 1, as we pointed out before, the Lord said, I have found you, singular, you only righteous in this generation. He wasn't just positionally righteous with, a, with an official standard of right with God, but he lived a life of righteousness. He practiced righteousness. He walked in holiness. These days, many Christians act as if a holy life is something optional. It's important that I believe in Jesus, but I live however I please. No, not so. By faith, God requires us not only to trust the Savior, but to walk in the righteousness of the Savior. God requires faithfulness. The Bible repeatedly warns us that the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It teaches us that those who practice the deeds of the flesh, the impurity and immorality and the greed and the slander, that we will not inherit the kingdom. Hebrews 12 tells us to pursue holiness because without it we will never see God. It, it, it's a necessary uh, result of our faith. God requires faith. Well, finally, and most simply, in our text, we read that Noah's faith obeyed. Noah obeyed God. Our text says it several times. In chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. In chapter 7, verse 5, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. And in chapter 7, verse 9, they entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. That passage on faith in Hebrews 11 that I mentioned ago is one of the most pointed statements in the whole Bible about this, what faithfulness looks like. The obedience that characterizes true faith. There we read in Hebrews 11, By faith Noah, when warned about things not seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, he believed. He built an ark to save his family. 
Imagine if Noah had said, you know, that design, I don't like that design. It's, it's, it's not, it's awfully boxy. It's not very aesthetically pleasing at all. I think we could get uh, our architects to come up with something that would be much more uh, uh, appropriate uh, tribute to God. It, it, it doesn't have to be that big. It doesn't have to be that size. It, it, let's, let's do it different. We, we can't be, uh, this is such an old-fashioned kind of model that God's given us. Let's, let's build a different kind of ark. Or, or, or imagine if, if Noah had said, well, now I certainly believe in God. But, but, you know, we've never had a flood really here. God could not possibly mean that he is actually going to send a flood. We don't have those around here. I think we need to demythologize this flood. I think we need to understand that the real meaning here is that God predicts that the world will be flooded with sorrow if his people continue to do violence to one another. That's the real meaning. Noah could have gone around as a preacher of doing good so that the world would not be flooded with sorrow. Or suppose Noah had said, hey, God promised to save us. <laughs> he said it was grace. He didn't need me breaking my back building some ark somewhere. If he wants to save me, he's able to save me. Besides, I wouldn't be trusting God if I was building an ark. They'd be thinking I'd save by works, not faith. I'm just going to trust God. I'd sit here in my recliner, trust God. See, all of those that are so common to things that go on today, those are not what Noah did. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, he had never seen this either. In holy fear, he built an ark to save his family. Now, now, I make quite a point of this because I see lots of Christians saying, I believe, I believe. Singing, shout for joy to the Lord. But I see a pitiful little ark building going on. The God who promises to deliver us has told us the means that he's going to use to deliver us. It's inconceivable that Noah could believe that God would deliver him and disregard the means that God gave him for his deliverance. But we do. God has promised to deliver us in Jesus. But we give lip service to him and there's so little fervent discipleship to bring every thought captive to Christ to have my whole life transformed by renewing my mind so that I think like God thinks and I do what God says, period. We claim we believe in an ark, we just don't ever bother to hammer in the nails and bind it all together to where it would hold up in a storm. And sure enough, our faith falls apart in a storm. God's given us the means in his church, he's giving us the proclamation of his word. He's raised up 
teachers to teach us and leaders to lead us. And he's bound us together in a fellowship which he personally says is more important even than our blood relatives. It's an ark that God's built for us, that he tells us to build according to his plan. The church, a safe place where our souls are fed, where we're held accountable by one another, where we grow in the faith, where our children grow in the faith. And yet there are a host of Christians who think that life in the church is purely optional. I believe in Jesus, personal relationship, you know. I'm my own church. No. In holy fear, Noah built the ark. In holy fear, we together build a church where we can be nurtured in the faith and where we're accountable to one another and where there's a structure that holds things together and where there are people who are godly and we give attention to it, we give priority to it. It's the ark of our salvation. For here we meet Jesus. Not out in the street, not in the mall, not on the television. Here we meet Jesus, who's the only hope. Oh, and that whole scene becomes an even graver concern when we think about our children. God has provided a context here where our children are to grow in faith. The context of godly parents, of practical training, of hiding God's word in our hearts and the secure bonds of God's people, where they see many, many examples of godliness. And yet there are just a whole lot of so-called Christian families who dote on their children, but do not instill in them this primary commitment to Christ. Do not fill them with God's word. Do not provide an example of active, faithful life in a Christian church. And don't teach their children any distinction between being part of God's family and being part of the world. If you're one of those who just let your kids grow up like everyone else, what are you thinking? Do you not know there's judgment coming? Do you not know they have no hope but Jesus? Do you secretly believe that your children's popularity in the world is more important than being in the ark? God requires faithfulness. In holy fear, Noah built the ark to save his family. He was saved by faith and grace alone. But there's not a chance that he would have been saved had he not been in the ark. There's a vital relationship, you see, between faith and faithfulness. Between believing God and keeping His commandments. Now it's important to separate faith and works in our discussion about the gospel in order to make it crystal clear that we are saved by grace, not by something we earn by our meritorious service. And so the Bible talks often about being saved by faith, not works. And that's an important discussion. For it's grace, it's all grace. And it's grace that's offered freely to the worst of sinners. 
come to Jesus, salvation is free. Even for those, for, especially for those, only for those who cannot save themselves. But as important as it is to separate faith and works in our discussion, in our living, it is not possible to separate them. You cannot separate what you believe and what you do in your life. It's true in every area of life, not just in the religious thing. If I told you that in two minutes from now, two minutes, the roof is going to collapse and this building is going to collapse down into the basement, I could readily know who believed that by looking at who gathered up their children and got them out of here. And if you continue to sit here, there is no way that you could say, well, I believe him. It doesn't work that way. We do what we believe. So while we separate faith and works for the sake of understanding, grace is grace. In our practice, God requires faithfulness. That we be so full of faith that we do what he says that we are like Noah, who in holy fear built the ark to save his family. God said, I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife and your sons' wives with you covenant was part of the same covenant of grace that God has extended to us. It's true grace. God sovereignly showing favor on undeserving sinners was for Noah, is for us. It's all of God. Just as he planned and designed the ark, he has planned and designed the way of salvation. He sent his son to accomplish it. He sends his spirit to call us to himself. But this grace of God obligates us to the response that Noah had. A response of faith, believing God's word and trusting the Savior. A response of righteousness, not just positional righteousness, where we're justified by faith, but to live that out in a righteous life and obedience. Faith that believes God enough to do what he said. Anything less will leave us out in the cold when it begins to rain. And oh, it will rain. Amen. Dear Lord, it's hard to know what we might have done if we stood in Noah's shoes. The thought of being the only one who believed things that seemed unbelievable and acted on them over a long period of time, certainly to the tune of the scoffing. Oh Lord, what faith. Give us that kind of faith. 
faith that really believes you. Faith that really obeys you. May it be true of this church. May it be true of every home in this church. Every person here. In Jesus' name we pray.